0: All right, again, uh, if you have not done that, some of you are just coming in, uh, we got um, a couple handouts for you. I don't know where we... Charlotte, you got all of them there, okay. We got a couple handouts there as you're coming in. One of them is an end of times survey and uh, there will be a letter grade at the end of all this and uh, I'm just joking, it will not be. Um, that end of times survey, again, is anonymous. You don't have to put your name on it, um, but I encourage you, if you would, for my benefit, and uh i think yours as well that you would fill that out and uh and then when you're, ever, you're done filling it out you can just leave it on your table i'll collect them at the end of the night after afterwards um, and then the other one it says in times um a beginning august 30th 2023 that is the handout that you can follow along with uh, that i hope kind of helps you here tonight um, and if you did not know this and you're showing up not knowing what we were talking about uh, we are talking about the end times, the end times. And, um, you know, I was uh, in a missiology class in seminary. And so whenever you see ology, right, at the end of a word, you know, it's a study of something, right? So it was the study of missions. And we were studying missions throughout church history. And really, post Jesus' ascension into heaven, we were studying missions from that point forward. And it was a documentary. And the documentary would focus on different kind of eras, if you will, time periods of how God was working through missions through the church in that time period. And at the end of that time period, there would be a a transition. And usually that transition was um, sparked by persecution. And so that persecution would bring about something, some kind of transition. And the narrator would say... At the end of every transition, he said, and all the Christians thought the world was coming to an end. And at, you know, the first time you hear that, you think, OK, yeah, it makes sense. But then it happens again and again and again. And, uh, because the documentary covered like 2,000 years of church missions. And every time there's a big transition, persecution, changes, the narrator is saying all the Christians thought the world was coming to an end. Um, And it became comical, almost, uh, as you read that. Not comical in that sense, but it just reminded you how every generation, every generation has declared, and this is my first little uh, fill-in-the-blank here, every generation has declared, it's the end of the world. It's the end of the world, as we know it. And uh, some of you even know a song that kind of goes to that tune. But... um, Every generation has believed and proclaimed it's the end of the world. Well, eventually, what we envision will unfold, and eventually a generation will get to say, hey, see, we told you we were right, you know. Um, I don't know if it will be this generation or not. Many people think it will be. But again, every generation has. uh, My grandpa always said, hey, it's going to happen in my lifetime, and in my lifetime, well, we were at his funeral about five or six years ago. It wasn't in his lifetime um, but as we wait longer and longer, the debate seems to just grow and grow. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Where? How? What? Um, there was a guy at Medford um, when we were there pastoring in Medford, and he, I mean, he was obsessed with this. And anytime you came across him, it was. He had come up with the date, and the date was very fluid and always changing, but man, he had cracked the code, and uh, he had solved whatever it is he was trying to solve. And so um, um, everybody's wanting to know. The debate grows with this. But even the disciples, even Jesus' disciples debated and wanted to know. Um, There's a passage in Matthew chapter 24, which is a passage we'll come back to several times in this series, Um, It's known as the Olivet Discourse. And the reason it's known as that is because Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is just right outside Jerusalem. This is approaching the end of his public earthly ministry. And uh, it's a big moment in which he gives this kind of revealing of what is to come. And, you know, he's got Jerusalem right there before him, the temple and everything. But there's the scene as it opens up in verse 1 of Matthew 24 we see that jesus is leaving the temple and he's walking away when his disciples came up to him and they called his attention to the buildings the buildings which were um, some of them in works the temple had been um, really worked on in jesus's time and just right before him um, and so they come up to jesus in the same way that we do maybe in a big city um, i remember going to chicago for the first time and i've never been in new york City, but i remember going to chicago and riding the train into downtown Chicago and then getting out and coming out of the subway station and just looking around and like, man, check out these buildings, you know? Like, look at all these buildings. That's in essence what they're doing. Hey, Jesus, check out these buildings. Look how beautiful and grand and spectacular they are. Well, in verse 2, um, Jesus says, hey, do you see all these things? He asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another, Every one of them will be thrown down. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us, come on, when will this happen? Come on, we all want to know when, right? When's the hour, when's the, when's the day, when's the second? When will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Um, again, we'll unpack The context, especially the historical context of Jesus' words there and what followed. Um, But my point is, even the disciples, among themselves, you know we're debating. You know they wanted to know, even as their question shows, when, how, what, all these kind of things. But here's the thing. This is your next point here. Here's the main thing. Jesus is coming again. (laughs) Jesus is coming again. Now... You read throughout the New Testament, the last days, and you know it's near and soon, and all that kind of stuff. And and you think, wow, it's been 2,000 years, you know, and it's never going to happen. You know, Peter, you know, kind of talked to this, and people say, wow, come on, the 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 world just keeps moving as is. It's never going to happen, all that kind of stuff. But what we do find is that man, he is coming again, and it'll happen like a thief in the night. You know, when you think, oh, it's never going to happen, oh. All of a sudden, just like his first coming, it'll just happen. Um, So Jesus is coming again. The debate is, though, what happens before he comes again, and what happens right after he comes again. And so we call this the study of the end times, hence the name of the series here, the study end times, or eschatology, and that's your next fill in the blank here. Eschatology is the study of the end times. Eschatology, it's E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. So if you ever hear somebody start talking about eschatology, they're talking about the study or the the focus on the end times, meaning what will happen right before Jesus comes again, what will happen right after Jesus. So what I want to do is uh, paint an overview um, of some different views, and and when I say paint that overview, it's going to take more than one night. Uh, This is a a deep, there's a lot to this topic, Um, but over this series, what I want to do is paint kind of an overview of some different views and how those different views have tried to basically compartmentalize. Their understanding of all history, of current world events, and what is to come, and how all that is laid out in scripture. (laughs) Um, And after presenting and going over those views, I then wanted to dive into, um, you might call them the controversial passages. Um, They're not controversial, it's just that they're passages that have produced all the debate. Um, and all the different interpretations or differences. Um, but I also want to look at why people take different views on those scriptural passages. Um, one example is Revelation 20. It's a very famous one. Um, Revelation 20, 1 through 3. Uh, it's just one or a few of the verses. But this is um, John who is seeing an image. A, a, he, he's getting a glimpse of something. And like he does throughout the rest of the book, he gets many of them. And what he sees is an angel coming down out of heaven. We read in Revelation 21, 20, verse 1. Coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. Verse 2, the angel sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. Years. He then threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Those few verses are the beginning uh, bit of a passage in which, even as we saw in those verses, which we get our 1,000-year reign of Christ that you've heard a lot about, and that was on one of your questions, the survey, the millennium, uh, that's what that is talking about, that 1,000-year reign of Christ, as it's known, which that runs through verse 10 of Revelation 20. But this passage really kickstarts a debate Um, People trying to make sense of this passage and tie it back into Scripture, the Old Testament, the rest of the New Testament. But also then taking some of the Old Testament and the New Testament and tying it back into this passage, trying to make sense of this thousand-year reign and what that looks like and all that kind of stuff. And you might say, well, why is it so complicated? You know? Um, Because some people... Um, there's one camp that takes that literally, that there will be a future, literal, bodily reign of Jesus right here on earth for a thousand years. Um, and he will reign, some people debate with, with those who've been martyred who are believers, some would debate that he will reign with ethnic Jews, you know, there's some debates on who he will be reigning with, but he'll be reigning for a thousand years on earth. So he will... Physically be here for a thousand years reigning while the enemy the evil one is locked up not able to deceive the nations for that thousand years Um, And but then some people take it symbolically They say no, no, it's symbolic. The thousand years is a symbolic number that represents either now Jesus's reign now um, And they look at other passages to try to say that Um, And so that's where you get you know, some people take it literally some people take it symbolically um, and then they're all asking, you know, when will this happen? Where exactly would Jesus be reigning? And, and what does that actually look like? What would they be doing? Uh, what would the earth look like for that 1,000 years? Um, so that's one reason why it's complicated, why there's different views. Um, some people take Revelation as a book full of recapitulation, um, meaning it's describing, in many ways, the same event from different angles. So in other words, John is getting uh, different images, different revelations um, about the same event, but from different angles. Um, there's an old movie that came out probably 10 to 15 years ago called Vantage Point. Uh, I think his name's Dennis Quaid, I think is his name. But there was, a, there was an assassination, a political assassination in the movie. And the movie keeps coming back to this assassination. It shows it over and over Um, Like five or six times, but from a different angle. So it's the same event, but from a different angle. Um, And it's, you know, some people would argue that that's what's going on in Revelation. But I say all that to say is to show you it gets really complicated. There's a lot of different views, a lot of different angles, uh, and that's why the debate gets complicated and why there is one. And so I want to go over passages like Revelation 20. and other pa- passages as well, the Daniel 9s of the world, the Matthew 24s, the First Thessalonians 4 of the world. Um, and so I want to unpack them, and I want to seek to have us see how they tie into the Old Testament, which, by the way, is huge. If you're reading the book of Revelation, and you've never really dabbled in the Old Testament, you're going to be lost and confused. Because every other sentence is like imagery from the Old Testament. It is incredible what John is doing with that book Um, and so we need to unpack some of those see how they tie into the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament Um, and then we'll talk about the views on those passages as we dive in and then when it's all said and done I want to give my two cents and I'll tell you kind of where I stand among the dust storm Um, but tonight is kind of like an introduction and uh, introduction to some some terms um, some some language, but also to some ideas and different approaches to these terms and ideas. Uh, and we need to introduce these approaches, because whether you realize it or not, it plays into the different terms and ideas on the end times, and it's played into your idea of the end times. Um, and because it, it really is huge here. And so I want to look at the two, kind of the biggest, most popular um approaches to scripture at large but these also play significantly into views of the end times and what's going to happen right before jesus is coming and right after and that brings us here to covenant theology versus dispensational theology uh, how many of you have heard the word dispensationalism outside of the survey that you just saw earlier um, yeah, some of you, okay. Um, there's a very good chance that if you have not heard that term, you're definitely familiar with it. Um, how many of you have read the Left Behind books or seen the Left Behind movies? Some of you, yeah. Uh, that is definitely a dispensational viewpoint um, on the end times. And so dispensationalism has been the probably one of the most popular ones, especially in the SBC world, easily for the last 100 years, and uh, we'll unpack... Kind of why and the history of it, um, but these two um, are uh, the biggest systems of theology. And again, theology is the study of Theos, who is God, the study of God. And so they are approaches to studying Scripture, in essence. And they these approaches impact interpretation. As well. And these two um, theologies, covenant theology versus dispensational theology, both of them have been around um, for at least three to five hundred years. And we'll look at that a little bit as we go along. But they are both developed to try to explain how God deals with man in, sal- in the salvation process. Right? So, how does God deal with, with humanity since the creation of the world? The fall, the rebellion, to the whole salvation redemption process, and what's his plans for humanity, not just now, but in the future. Um, but also to try to explain the role of ethnic Israel and the church in God's plan of salvation. Um, the role of Israel and the church, and the relationship of the church to Israel, and vice versa is a very big debate and a hot passionate debate among many circles even in the sbc world i remember my seminary days even among professors um it just is and we'll unpack all of that but let's start with just a basic definition of covenant theology um and this is your first blank here with covenant theology think covenants think covenants C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T-S. When you hear covenant theology, think covenants. It's the approach to interpreting the Bible that sees God's work and his purposes towards mankind through the covenants. Through the covenants. Um, it sees that the redemptive history revealed in Scripture is explicitly articulated through the succession of covenants you say well, what are those covenants well the first covenant is with God and Adam or sometimes this is known as the um, the Edenic um, covenant. in other words it's the covenant given to Adam in the Garden of Eden and it comes in Genesis chapter 2 uh, usually the covenant is hey I'm gonna do this you just need you need to do this and not do this you right so hey Adam, go be fruitful and multiply. You can partake of any tree you that know, has fruits and that's good and all that kind of stuff. But don't partake of this tree over here, right? You know, we know the story. And so that is the um, covenant that God had with Adam in Genesis 2. But then we get a new covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Remember, it's the same kind of covenant with the be fruitful and multiply. It tells Noah to do the same thing. Um, and so he gives him special instructions there. And then the next one you see is with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God establishes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And then the famous one that most people think about is the one with Moses and really the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 through 24, right? This is the giving of the law or the Torah. Um, And so you have that massive covenant that's given there. And then the next one that we see pop up is with David, King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, he gives the Davidic um, covenant there with David. And then finally you come to the new covenant given to us by somebody's blood in his blood. That is Jesus, right? Um, And that you can look at like Luke 22 with that covenant there. And so... Um, Covenant theology kind of organizes or has this organizing principle to understanding the Bible and history, past, present, future, um, through these covenants. And this is kind of how the covenant theology sees God relating to humanity through these covenants and that God works exclusively through these covenants in everything that he does. Okay, so that's covenant theology in a nutshell, by the way. Uh, now let's go to dispensationalism Um, dispensationalism is a method of interpreting history that divides God's work and purposes toward mankind into different periods of time in other words each dispensation is a God-appointed age so your next fill in the blank here when it comes to dispensationalism Think ages, like almost like massive seasons, but think ages. The ages loosely follow the covenants, but not exactly. And classic dispensationalism or the traditional dispensationalism identifies seven dispensations or God-appointed ages in God's plan for humanity. Those seven are, number one, innocence. We see this in Genesis 1 through 3, pre-fall. We see that God is um, interacting with humanity, and there's innocence there, right? This is pre-rebellion. This is pre-sin you know, in the world. So number one, that would be that first dispensation, the dispensation or the age of the time of innocence. The second one is the time of conscience, Um Genesis four through eight, where you now see God just. This is pre-law. This is post-fall, and you see all these things that are transpiring pre-fall, or I mean pre-flood, and so you have this where God relating to them through just conscience, almost like reason. So, what was the word conscience? Conscience, yeah, like con science, right? Conscience, conscience, almost like through reasoning, reasoning only. Um, so that is the second age. The third age is through just human government, human government. And this is Genesis nine through 11. They would say just the age of human government. And remember, this is kind of pre Babel, right? Pre Tower of Babel. um, and everything kind of changed at that moment. And so with these ages, you always see kind of a, a climax to something to where then God kind of says, okay, kind of a, we need to change. We, we need to we need change this here. Uh, the next age is the age of promise. The age of promise, and this begins with Abraham, Genesis 12. Genesis 12 through Exodus 11. So you have this age of promise. Um, God is interacting then through, you know, these promises to Abraham and his offspring. And then you get to The fifth age, which is the age of the law, right? So again, that's kind of like that covenant that comes at Mount Sinai, but the age of the law. Um, That that is Exodus 12 through Acts 1. (laughs) All the way through Acts 1, they would say. Um, So the law kind of carries all the way up until the birth of the church, Acts 2, right? Pentecost, right? That's the, the birth of the church. And then number six, the sixth age would be the church age. And they would argue that that is Acts 2, Pentecost, Holy Spirit of God comes, to Revelation 3/19. And we'll talk about the rapture and rapture theology. But those who hold to a rapture would, would take the church all the way to Revelation 3, church is taken out, and then reappears in Revelation 19. Um, Again, we'll look at that in just a moment, but that would be the church age, and then the final seventh age is the kingdom age, which is really Revelation 20 till never, or not till never, but till forever, you know, Uh, so all that to say is when it comes to dispensationalism, think ages, and listen, I just, a lot has been said on both of those theologies, and many books have been written on those theologies, it is overwhelming, to say the least. Um, and evangelical believers are in disagreement on some of these things. They fall into different camps, and they have their reasonings for why. These are people who love Jesus, love His words, and love the church, and care deeply about following Him. And they still find disagreement. And we're going to unpack those differences and why as we go along. But again, tonight I'm just kind of introducing this to you because I don't want to just scare you off on night one, you see. Um, but I am going to try to simplify it all as best I can and just take this very complicated, messy topic, many passages, and the whole KISS method, right? Keep it simple, silly. I'm going to say silly, all right, because we're in church setting here. So keep it simple, silly, um, because it's one of those things in which you and I, we can get really bogged down with this. And almost sometimes discouraged with this and um, and miss the forest, if you will, as we're lost among the weeds or something even worse. Um, And we all can be guilty of this. You remember what Paul told Timothy? This is second Timothy four, two through four. He said, Timothy, listen, preach the word. Be prepared, always ready in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke and encourage Do this with great patience and careful instruction. Because the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. It's not just true in our day and age. This was true in Paul's day, right? It's been true all throughout 2,000 years. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires or wishes or appetites, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And when this happens, they will turn their ears away from the truth and they'll turn aside to myths. And make no mistake about it, I've seen people go down this this trail and just, man, it destroys sometimes their faith. So again, that's why I start out with the fact that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And... What he has in store for those who love him is brilliant and spectacular, and it's far beyond imagination and words, but we look forward to it with great hope. Um, and no matter what, we need to stay humble. Every time you even open up God's word, no matter how you're doing it, um, we can never open it up flippantly, and we must always open it up with humility and reverence, before God's letting God's word speak for itself um, that's the dangerous thing about saying okay I'm in this theology and so then and letting that determine everything that you read into scripture you must always no matter where you fall no matter what camp you fall in you must always approach scripture with this reverence this humility and let the scripture speak for itself um, We don't want to get so caught up where we're taken away from the truth and forget the truth or who Jesus is and what is to come for all those who love him. So we've looked at the two most popular approaches to Scripture. Uh, For many, for many, they're not obviously the only ones. There's many out there, but these just tend to be the two popular ones. So let's switch gears for just a moment. And this kind of comes to your next point here. When it comes to the end times or to eschatology, the study of the end times, the debate and interest is all around the second coming of Jesus. It's all around the second coming of Jesus. And again, what, right, what happens right before and right after. So the debate and the interest is all around the second coming of Jesus. Um, you might hear people say the perusia or the perusia, uh, however it is they want to pronounce it. And what what they're talking about there is the second coming of Jesus and what happens right before and right after. So words like rapture, words like millennium, that thousand years, words like tribulation or the great tribulation. Um, All of this, at least when most people are using these terms in our context, it has to do with the second coming of Jesus, the right before and the right after. And so, um, the main passages we'll look at around this study, again, passages like Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, and really 5, and into 2 Thessalonians, um, massive chunks, obviously, of Revelation. um, And so, just among others that we'll look at. Uh, But as a result, um, as a result of this interest in all this debate, Views and ideas have come about, and those theologies that we just talked about have played into those views or those ideas, and again, they impact even where you and I land within those views, Um, even where pastors go to seminary. You know, certain seminaries lean one way or another. Dallas Theological Seminary, DTS, it's non-denominational, but a lot of SBCers go over there, and a lot of friends go, they are notorious for being dispensational. Um, Oh, Richard knows that, right? Yeah, Um, and so, you know, certain seminaries lean towards one direction or another, and so it it really impacts then how you've been taught and what you've seen and so on and, and so forth. And so tonight I just want to introduce these main views or these ideas um, on the millennium and on kind of rapture and the tribulation. And uh, and then we'll see if there's any questions after this just brief introduction, all right? Um, So that brings us down here to the bottom of your sheet. And you'll see I've got here pre-millennium, post-millennium, millennium. And then rapture, then pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation. And what you can do with this paper, I've got an arrow here, is you can actually turn it horizontally to where you can see, you can have the arrow going to your right, because um, I'm gonna give you a little diagram here that I hope will help you um, in mapping this out. And so, um, so let's kind of break this down here based off this arrow. Hold on, Dave, I'm going to get me a little bit more slack here. All right. I'm not the best drawer. I didn't draw that arrow. And so here we go. We got an arrow. Everybody everybody had their line and their arrow. All right. That's going to be the best way for you to probably remember this. All right. So what you can do on your line is draw a little line right here. All right, maybe just draw a little line right there. All right. And on the left of that line underneath, you can just put Old Testament. And what I mean by that is pretty much creation of the world. Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the way, and then the rest of that history, all the way up to the cross. And we'll put the cross there just to kind of represent... The birth, the life, the ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, right? And his ascension back into heaven. Um, So you got Old Testament, you got there, and then you've got, after this, you got the, to the right of that line, you have the church age, right? The church, the the. Bride of the Lamb, the Body of Christ, the uh, followers of Jesus. Um, We see, again, going to Acts 2, you have Pentecost. This is a huge moment that goes, um, that has imagery going all the way back to Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light, the tabernacle, God's presence fills the tabernacle, to where God's presence filled the temple, to where God's presence filled Mary, or at least the person of Jesus in Mary. And then now, God himself is filling these individuals. Um, It's a massive moment. So you have the church age, all right? And then everybody is in agreement up until this point, no matter what camp you fall in. But then the debate really picks up around here, all right? And so we're going to try to do this. I'm going to use red, I guess, for uh, let's do millennium here. I'm going to do, so go ahead and do a line. So the right of church age there okay and then give yourself a little bit of space and then do another line right there we're going to come back to this little space right here in just a moment if you all can see that over there okay all right then we get this on the above you can write this or below it doesn't matter we'll write a thousand years all right so you got your millennium right here a thousand years again this is where we get where revelation 20 talks about a thousand years all right so that's your a thousand years and then you can put another line right there okay so in this little space here you can put tribulation Tribulation, and if you want, right above it, in maybe parentheses or something, you can write seven years. Seven years. All right. So you got that. Now let's break down where the views are. Let's do uh, black again here. All right. You got Old Testament. God creates all things. brings something out of nothing. You have things are good and nice in the garden. You have sin, rebellion, all that. You get all Old Testament. Jesus shows up, and everything changes, and and then you get the church age. But then you get tribulation here, Uh, and then you get this thousand-year reign. And so the premillennialist, the premillennialist believes that Jesus is going to come back What do you think? Pre 1000 years, pre millennium, right? So they would say that Jesus is gonna come back. In other words, this is when he's going to start his earthly reign. So pre 1000 years, Jesus is gonna come down. He's gonna establish this earthly kingdom and he's gonna physically be here. Most people say in the land in which God promised Abraham um, that ge- geography over there, the nature of Israel to the east of Mediterranean Sea, that he's going to establish this earthly kingdom, live for a thousand years, and then usher in the new creation after this. So we'll just put NC for new creation over here after this little line. All right? So the premillennialist would say that. All right? The postmillennialist would say... That Jesus is going to come back. When do you think? After the one thousand years. So the postmillennialist sounds like a uh, a political figure in the U.S. Hey, you know we're just going to keep getting better and we're just going to keep getting better. And, and hey, you vote for me, it's going to keep getting better. And I'm going to pass this policy and we're going to implement this and it's going to just going to get better and better. The postmillennialist believes. That in the church age things are just going to get better and better and better to where God in essence is going to put everything under the control and the power of his church in other words that God is going to hit a point here where things truly become visible that God is reigning through his church here on earth as it is in heaven um, and so it's just going to progress All right? so the post-millennialists if you're taking notes you can kind of think of like progression we're just going to keep progressing then after this very nice 1,000 years, um, then he's going to come back, and then we'll live happily ever after. Even though, in a way, you could argue this is happily ever after if you're a post-millennialist. But anyway, the amillennialist, the amillennialist would say that, okay, so, there you go. So pre- and post-millennialist would argue that the 1,000 years is a literal 1,000 years. You know, so both of those in that camp would argue that it's a literal thousand years. The amillennialist view, the amillennium, those who hold to this would see it as symbolic. They would argue that, no, 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 right now we're in this a thousand years. That right now by Jesus' death, does he, in other words, um, uh, take captive the evil one in a specific way? Because... In Revelation 20, it is a specific chaining so that he would not be able to deceive the nations. So they would argue that it's, it's um, symbolic to say, no, 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 all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus right now. He's reigning even over death itself, uh, and he's reigning in and through his body, his church, his people, who now possess the third person of the Holy Trinity. And so they would argue that we're in the thousand years right now, and then all we're waiting for is Jesus's second coming and then him to usher in a happily ever after. So in a way, the post and the amillennialist are, are the same in that when Jesus comes, it's going to be at the end of all things. After that, it's just new creation. Um, but the difference is the amillennialist sees the thousand years as symbolic. The post-millennialist sees it as literal. Okay. Um, here's the thing, this is why I separate the tribulation in a thousand years, is you have some people who hold to the millennium, but they do not hold to, like, the rapture or something like that. And so now I want to break down the tribulation for you. And this really is connected to Daniel chapter 9 and all his weeks that we'll look at there. Um, but then here you get the rapture, which is really found in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's the main, main passage for that. Uh, where Paul is talking about how we will be, those who are alive at Jesus' second coming will be snatched up, caught up. Um, that's where we get that word rapture. It means to be caught up uh, or literally snatched away. And uh, that we will meet those in the air who died before us, but who are also in Christ, and we'll meet with them in the air. And then the way that Paul envisions the language, that we'll just live happily ever after after that uh again we'll look at that passage when it comes but i wanted to give you the diagram so you kind of know how they envision it so you have the seven years of tribulation which again goes back to daniel 9 just just keep that in your mind we'll look at that later um but it covers seven years so those who hold to a rapture um there's three different camps see how complicated this is right um there's three different camps within the rapture theology One is pre-tribulation. So, let's do a different color here for this. So pre-tribulation would be the church... That doesn't work. That the church is being... Oh my goodness. All right, there we go. The pre-tribulation view is that the church will be taken out of the world... Before this seven years of tribulation and this tribulation is not just a little persecution or things of this nature And we've seen great persecution. Well, we necessarily experientially haven't but many people believers have and are right now But they would argue uh, What most people talk about with this tribulation is this is the great tribulation think of like fireworks the fourth of July You see the fireworks you see the fireworks, but then it hits the finale and you know it's the finale that's kind of what they say with the tribulation, yeah. There's going to be these growing pains, there's going to be rumblings, but when it hits the finale, you know it's the finale, that kind of thing. So those who are uh, in the rapture camp who believe in a pre-tribulation would say the church is going to be taken away before this seven years occurs. The mid-tribulation view is, guess what? Mid-seven years. Right at the three-and-a-half-year mark, so things are going to be really, really bad, but not as bad as the second three and a half. And, and a lot of this is described that argue, in Revelation like four into leading up to Revelation 19. Um, and so the mid-tribulation view is that the church will be taken out mid-tribulation, the three and a half year mark. Again, we'll look at what that means and why later. And then guess what the post-tribulation view is? <laughs> Yeah, the church will be taken after that seven years, but before the thousand year reign. Um, And so, hopefully, that diagram kind of helps you a little bit. So, again, just to recap everybody is in agreement up to this point. You got the Old Testament, all that, Jesus comes, you got the church age. And again, the whole debate happens what comes down to what happens right before Jesus comes and what happens right after. And so some people say Jesus is, in essence, going to come down and take his church out, either pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation. But then, at some point, Jesus is going to come down and establish an earthly, physical reign, either pre-1000 years or right after that 1000 years, um, or really the post-millennium, really is kind of, he's established it here, but he's just not physically here. And so, and then you got the millennial view who just says, no, 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 all this is symbolic. Um, yes, we're all going to go through this tribulation, but God's going to be with us in the tribulation. Even Je- John talks about this in Revelation 1. Um, his, basically, partners in the tribulation, he kind of uses that language, or brothers and sisters in the tribulation. So they would just see all this is symbolic, and then Jesus comes down again when he does he ushers in this new creation where we his church share in the bodily resurrection of Jesus were raised imperishable raised with immortality raised in glory to live in a new world Um, no matter what camp you fall on this is to me very very key And, and it all comes back to the resurrection of Jesus meaning he wasn't just resuscitated he didn't come back as a ghost He didn't get a new body in the sense that he left that body and went over here and got a new one. That body that was put into the ground, physically died, that body was radically transformed. Raised imperishable, raised with immortality, raised in honor and glory. And it's really weird because that body is also the same body that's just appearing in rooms with locked doors like a ghost. That's why they thought it was a ghost. They're, They're startled and afraid. That's why John would say, man, all the disciples, when they're eating with Jesus, want to say, Lord, is it you? But none of them dare ask it, because it's really weird. Um, we watched you publicly slaughtered, and now here you're, we're eating fish together. This doesn't make sense. And then they watched him ascend into a world that is spiritual. The heavenly world, heaven is a spiritual world. And so what you see at the end of Revelation is the spiritual world and the physical world on a cosmic level coming together in a way that you saw with Jesus. Perfection of the the physical and the spiritual together to live happily ever after. Um, And so what God has in store is a reality in which is far beyond um, imagination and beauty. Um, It is perfect in every sense. So that, in a nutshell, is your differences. This is, again, an introduction Just an overview. Um, And again, which theology you tend to lean towards, covenant theology, dispensational theology, or another theology, is going to impact how you interpret some of the passages we'll look at that, in essence, paint this picture. Um, And this is where the great debate unfolds. Um, But we must, again, with humility and reverence, Seek the Lord's in His wisdom and direction, and come to His Word with open hearts and minds, and let Him speak into us. Uh, you know, I've always, anytime talking about the end times, I, I always tell people, I don't, I don't want to be. I love talking about this stuff. I love dialoguing over it, unpacking it, um, but I also don't want to be like the religious people in Jesus's day, who thought they knew everything. They possibly could know about the prophecies. And then they were standing before the embodiment of fulfillment, and they couldn't see it. And so again, it's all about the relationship with God, pursuing God, loving God, following God, serving God, and knowing, man, what he has in store for us is brilliant. Um, So no matter where you lie, no matter the debate, we know what's coming. Either way, Jesus is coming again, and it's going to be spectacular, all right, Um, like a finale of a fireworks show. So uh, we got a couple minutes just on these introductions thus far. What are any questions that somebody might have, clarification needed? A lot to chew on, huh, tonight? Yeah? John, you got a question back there? 24. So there's a couple things he lines out in that Olivet Discourse. And one of them, you know, if you go back and study the fall of Jerusalem, so if you were to go to, how many have been to Israel in this room? Anybody been to Israel, been to Jerusalem? Yeah? you seen the Wailing Wall? You've you seen, you seen it on TV, maybe? Yeah? On the women's section. In, on the women's section, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's like the last remaining part of the structure of the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. And and we'll look a little bit more at this in depth, but there is a lot going on historically around the arrival of God himself into this world, that sometimes we just don't even know or haven't heard. Uh, things that happened before he was born, things that happened right after, and definitely things that happened within 40 years of his ascension back into his world. Um, he was very precise on the timing in which he stepped foot into this world. And one of the things with the fall of Jerusalem that happened is in 66 A.D., it would finally the uh, blood that had been boiling for so long, going back to about 65 years before Jesus was born. You had these zealots, right? Remember Simon the Zealot, one of the 12? Um, he would have hated Rome, and we'll look at why, but he would have hated Rome with a passion, and that's why imagining him with uh, Matthew the tax collector is mind-boggling to me. Um, That'd be like, I don't know. It wouldn't be quite like that. Never mind. Uh, It'd have been really hard, all right? It'd have been really hard. Let's just say that. Yeah. Yeah. Probably about that way. I mean, political views, you know, the thing, it was emotional, it was personal, there's reasons why. But so, anyways, so I'll just say so the blood finally boils over, and in 66 AD, there is this Jewish revolt. And the, the Jews, really the zealots, get enough power, enough, enough persuasion among their group to literally drive out the Roman presence in Jerusalem. Um, it'd be like us, you know, basically say, let's say we turned on, you know, um, well, we got a military base here. I know some of you are in the military. I'm just using this as an analogy, okay? But let's say the military of the United States started saying, hey, we can't worship Jesus, you know, and they were the ones enforcing that. You can't publicly meet in the name of Jesus so on and so forth. And this is what Rome did to the Jews. But not only that, they took their land, they took all sorts of things, and Rome gave them the stamp of approval to do it. And so imagine that scenario, but then imagine us getting enough people that we drove out any military personnel from this area, and we, in essence, set up our own little government That's what happened in 66 AD. And that goes on for a little while, until finally Rome says, okay, enough's enough. And it's a long story, we'll look at it, but they send um, some soldiers to deal with this, and they surround Jerusalem. And if you would've been living in Jerusalem and you knew the political stuff and you knew the historical context and you saw these things coming, jesus saying you see these things coming get out Mm -hmm. that's exactly what he meant and when you study the fall of jerusalem and you sit back and you reread the olivet discourse like jesus is telling them the exact blueprint of what is about to happen and what to do when they see it begin to unfold so rome surrounds jerusalem the soldiers and stuff and it's near passover and so they let the travelers who are traveling these jews traveling hey yeah you can go on into jerusalem you go on in for your passover and then they in essence shut the doors on them and they trapped them in Um, and they in essence starved them and things got so bad that inside the city factions were turning on each other josephus who's an historian who we get a lot of of this stuff from he said man it got so bad and you saw this in the old testament too at times but so bad that there's even stories of mothers eating their children they were that they were starving. It'd be like the military surrounding Enid, and we don't have grocery stores and all that, no trucks are coming in. Imagine that for days and weeks and months. And it's just chaos, madness inside. So finally, in 70 AD, they said, OK, that was good enough. And then they just burned the city down. And they burned the the, the temple down. And now you still got the Wailing Wall. Um, them hoping for the Messiah still to come, still living in denial that he's actually already come. And what's interesting about it, we'll look at the timing is that war did not end until 73 AD when who was still left in that little faction was chased up into the mountains. And in essence, they did the same thing up there. And so it was literally from the moment they revolted to the moment they killed the last remaining person of all of that revolt, it was seven years. Uh, which is very interesting. But anyways, I say all that to say is when you look at the Olivet Discourse, no doubt does Jesus have in the immediate forefront of his mind when he's talking. He's sitting there at the the Mount of Olives right outside Jerusalem. He knows this is coming. And and within just a few decades, he knows it's coming. So he's telling you these things, but he also has in mind the end of all things as well. And so there's a couple times where you see Prophecy where it has the immediate in mind, prophetic kind of word, but it's also can apply to future times as well. So I say to your question yes and no. And we'll look at it as we unpack that. So yes. I have a question. Yes. And it's really simple. You gave you said that some people take revelations as pre something, which means the same event, different angles. What was that pre word? Um so a couple of days, Revelation singular. So remember that too when you guys open up the book of Revelation, it's the revelation of or from Jesus Christ. And so John sees this as one massive revelation, but it's broken up into multiple images and times. Um, but I say all I'd say is when I was saying the recapitulation, some people take Revelation, the almost the whole book, really from after the the letters to the churches. Um, those major events, you know, the bowls and the scrolls and all that, um, it sees it as describing the same event, and not necessarily all of it, but in many, many spots, where it's describing the same event but from different angles. Recapitulation. Yes, it's, it's like, um, it's, descri- it's, it's a way to describe a, an event or something using different imagery, um or using different perspectives and uh you know you think like matthew mark luke and john they're not doing recapitulation but they are writing about the same events same conversation things like that but from different eyewitness accounts and perspectives and they have their overall goal and what they're they're writing and presenting their audience in mind and so on and so forth um and so some people would argue that revelation is doing the same thing and um You know, we'll debate that and unpack that when we get there, but that's kind of what they're talking about. And another reason why this is hard, and you get to the literal versus symbolic and so on, is, you know, the Bible is 66 books written over about a 1,400-year period, multiple different authors, context, um, all sorts of things. And there's different types of writing. Um, The Book of Romans is a different kind of book than the Book of Acts. The book of Acts is a different kind of book than the book of Psalms. And so you got all these different types of writings where Revelation is full of what we call apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is where you, this is where you tend to see prophecies, is it's usually describing a future event using current language or imagery that the current audience would understand. This is why john's initial jewish audience would really under pick up on some of these imageries that go back to the old testament um and so on and so forth so which we'll talk more about that but i know we got to close uh, if you got more questions find me right after and uh if you need need clarification on something just find me as well And you can say well, where do i fall hey no spoilers all right I, At the end, I'll give you my two cents. I'll tell you where I I land. So, all right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dismiss. Father, we thank you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus and your plans that you have for those who love you. We give you all the glory, the praise, and the honor. Give us peace and rest and assurance and confidence, knowing that you are in control of all things and that you are seeing all things to your desired will. We thank you, we love you, give you all the praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.